All right, friends, if you do have a Bible with you in your hand or on your phone, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up to the book of Hosea. Um, Go ahead and open up to the book of Hosea and have it ready with you because we will be doing uh, quite a bit of reading in this book this morning. We'll be flipping back and forth from verse to to verse. You don't have to flip to every single verse that is mentioned, but especially the larger chunks, you might find it helpful to be able to read along. If not, you can you can surely listen and go back and listen to these sermons on online to find those references as well. As I have the sermon manuscripts here, so I'd be more than happy to share those with you so that you can make use of that and, uh, and have access to those passages that we discussed. So whatever is going to help you to walk through this journey in this book uh, as we go through these overview sermons and these minor prophets, um, that's, what we're, that's what we're aiming for. Um, so here we are. And this morning, we are in the book of Hosea. We embark on a journey through the minor prophets. And today, we enter into the northern kingdom of Israel in the mid-700s, B.C. Keep in mind, this is B.C., so it goes 700, 600, 500 down to Christ. So we enter the northern kingdom of Israel in the mid-700s, B.C. And as we approach... We hear the true tale of Hosea and his adulterous wife named Gomer. But before us, we have a story that's greater than just a man and his wife. We are going to read about a husband and we are going to read about his adulterous bride, but it's not just Hosea and Gomer that we're going to see in this book. Because in this book, we're going to be witnesses to the faithful husband whose name is Yahweh and the unfaithful bride whose name is Israel. And so we come face to face with God in this passage and we come face to face with people, even ourselves. We have a book all about the faithfulness of God, despite the unfaithfulness of his people. A book all about the faithfulness of God despite the unfaithfulness of his people. Now, our journey begins here in Hosea because it's the first minor prophet. And it starts like many of the other minor prophets do with the phrase, the word of the Lord came. So in these 12 books, we have the very words of God, which are all about God. And we're going to see something about his heart for his people and his judgment against sin and his willingness to save. So these minor prophets teach us some really major truths. In fact, they aren't called minor because they're less important. They're called minor because they're smaller. They're smaller in size compared to the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But friends, they do pack a punch, don't they? These books range from the 8th century BC to the 5th century BC, there's a total of 12. Two of them, Hosea, which is our focus for this morning, Hosea and Amos, those two declare God's coming judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel, which was sometimes called Samaria because that was the capital city, or Ephraim because that was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. So Hosea, Amos, towards the northern kingdom, but the other 10 minor prophets, Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all of those proclaimed God's coming judgment to the southern kingdom of Judah. You see, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. 
You had Israel in the north and you had Judah in the south. And so I think a brief history lesson might help us as we begin this series to understand what's going on. In short, King David had a son. His son's name was Solomon. And Solomon was a wise king. He built, he oversaw the building of the temple of God. All the nations would come from around the way to come and hear his great wisdom and to hear his proverbs. Yet the problem is, is that Solomon took very many wives, hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines from the surrounding peoples. And their influence led to all sorts of idol worship that he signed off on. And so one of Solomon's servants rebelled against him. And his name was Jeroboam. And there was a prophet whose name was Ahijah. And he said that Jeroboam was going to rule over ten of the tribes of Israel because of the unfaithfulness of Solomon, the unfaithfulness of all the land. And so when Solomon had a son whose name was Rehoboam, this prophecy of Ahijah was fulfilled. So you have Jeroboam, you have Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was set to be king. But Jeroboam had a grievance against him along with all the people. They wanted a lower tax. Maybe you can relate to that kind of grievance. And of course, Rehoboam refused. And so Jeroboam and ten of the tribes of Israel rejected the kingship of Rehoboam and the Davidic dynasty, David's dynasty, and the kingdom split in two. So you had Jeroboam ruling in the northern kingdom of Israel. You had Rehoboam ruling in the southern kingdom of Judah. And the year was 930 B.C. And ever since that split, the northern and southern kingdoms were filled with evil king after evil king after evil king with hardly any positive stories to tell in the midst of it. And both of these kingdoms were involved in this hideous idol worship. And so God sent judgment upon them. In 722 BC, God's judgment came upon the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom was sent into exile because the Assyrians to the north came in and destroyed them. And about 140 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah also went into exile, but this not by the Assyrians, but by the Babylonians. You might remember the, uh, the idea of the Babylonian captivity. So the twelve minor prophets give us the warnings of these two great judgments. Hosea prophesied in the mid-700s to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he warned them about the coming judgment that God was going to bring upon them. And things in the northern kingdom were just spiraling out of control rapidly. In fact, Israel had six kings in only 30 years. Three of them ruled for no more than two years. Four of them were assassinated. One of them was just overthrown. And to the north of this northern kingdom, the Assyrians were becoming a very dominant force and a very dominant threat, which eventually came into fruition because they destroyed Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722 B.C. And this happened just a few short years after Hosea had his ministry. So he got it right. We're dealing with real history here. Real things that happened to real people. And so now we pick up the book of Hosea to read about the Lord as well as the judgment that he brought upon Israel by the Assyrians. 
But not only that, but we're going to read about the hope that he offered as well. We'll see that even though judgment was necessary for Israel because of their sin, the Lord is still faithful. The Lord is still faithful despite his people's unfaithfulness. And so to teach us about God's loyalty versus our loyalty, Hosea reads like two major volumes. Volume 1 is the first three chapters. Volume 2 is the rest of the book. Volume four through four, uh, chapters 4 through 14. So volume 1 is contained in chapters 1 through 3. And we read about the real life story of faithful and loyal Hosea and his unfaithful and disloyal wife Gomer. This is what someone call enacted prophecy because the message of Hosea's prophecy was on display in his marriage. It was enacted. He acted out. He lived out God's relationship with his people through his relationship with his wife. The second volume is the rest of the book. It's chapters 4 through 14. And these chapters no longer mention Hosea and Gomer. No longer mention this real life marriage In volume two, we clearly read about the message that God has for his people because of their unfaithfulness. So we go from enacted prophecy to proclaimed prophecy. And we're going to see that the Lord has a case against Israel. We're going to see his judgment of them. But we're also going to see the hope that he offers and the heart that he has. And in all of this, we're going to see that God is a faithful and loyal husband to his unfaithful and disloyal people. Sort of like Hosea was a faithful and loyal husband to his unfaithful and disloyal wife. So let's dive into both of these volumes together. Volume 1 is about Hosea and Gomer. And it involves their children. God comes to Hosea. And what he tells Hosea to do is to marry a woman of harlotry. He tells him to marry a woman who would commit adultery against him. So look at chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And so he went and took Gomer the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, right away, you can see that this is enacted prophecy. You can see it on play because God commands Hosea to marry a woman of harlotry for a reason. It says, for or because the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And so Hosea's marriage with Gomer is to be a window into which we can see Israel's relationship with God. A relationship in which God, I'm sorry, a relationship in which Israel was forsaking God. Here's the word, Flagrantly. And so before we can even go two verses into this book, sin is already described to us in terms of marital unfaithfulness. Forsaking God is a type of spiritual prostitution. Surely it's more than just a simple mistake, isn't it? And then Hosea and Gomer have three children. God orders Hosea to name them specific names. 
So that the children themselves would bear the names of the coming judgment that God was going to send on Israel. So here's verses 3 through 9. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So here's the first child, the first of the three. The Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. For yet a little while and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. So here's the second child. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. And then we go down to verse 8. We see the third child. When she had waned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Three children. The first was named Jezreel, which means God scatters. It can mean the way that someone scatters and destroys the chaff when you separate it from, from the crop. The second child was named Lo, no, Ruhama, which means no compassion. The third child was named Lo, Ami, which means not my people. So God scatters, no compassion, not my people. Those are the names of the children. And they pronounce the coming judgment. That God is going to scatter them. That God is going to destroy them. That he's going to have no more compassion on them because they are not his people and he is not their God. This is the family of Hosea and Gomer. Now, as we flip over to chapter 2, we read about Israel's unfaithfulness towards God. We read more about God's coming judgment. But the story of Hosea and Gomer actually picks up again in chapter 3. So if you can turn there, I want you to do your best to imagine it with me. What's going on? It seems that what has happened is that Gomer has given way to her lust and she's become an unfaithful wife by living a life of harlotry. Perhaps she's even sold herself into the cultic prostitution that was normal within the worship of Baal. But God calls Hosea to go and to get Gomer again. To bring her back home and to love her despite her unfaithfulness. He's told to do this because this is what our faithful God does for his unfaithful people. Chapter 3 is only five verses long, so it's worth our time to read it. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without, being, without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. And did you happen to catch the reason why God told Hosea to love his adulterous wife? 
and verse 1? Because verse 1 puts it very beautifully. He says to do this, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Friends, we have to remember that Hosea was a real man. That he lived during a real time. He had a real wife. He had real children. He would have experienced real emotions, real feelings, real pain, and real hurt, real jealousy. So in some way, we're supposed to be able to connect with Hosea, to put ourselves into his shoes and to imagine what it is that he must have felt to sense this extraordinary love and grace and mercy and pity and compassion that he must have had in order to pursue his adulterous wife. And then we're supposed to remove ourselves from Hosea's shoes and put on Gomer's. Because in this story, we're not like faithful Hosea. We're like unfaithful Gomer, who needs a faithful Hosea. The wonderful love and compassion that we sense from Hosea to his wife. We are to know in this book that there's a God who has infinitely more love and compassion for sinners like us. In these first three chapters, Hosea's wife displays the unfaithfulness of Israel. And his children's names display the judgment of God. And so throughout these first three chapters, we have dreadful pronouncements of coming judgment. Like in chapter 2, verse 13, it says, I'll punish her for the days of the Baals. It says that she forgot me, declares the Lord. So there's these great pronouncements of judgment. But on the other hand, these first three chapters declare the love and the mercy and the compassion of God. We see God's faithfulness when we see Hosea go to his wife and her unfaithfulness. And so God gives us great pronouncements of hope because of his faithful love. So, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 16 God says, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me my husband and will no longer call me my master. This is such loving language for God to use that his unfaithful people would be able to call him husband. And let's not forget about Hosea's children. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, God reverses the meaning of their names. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama. Instead of proclaiming only judgment over Israel, here we have a picture of hope. Lo Ruhama, or no compassion now becomes Ruhama. Lo Ami, or not my people, now becomes Ami, my people. And so while these names were chosen to predict the destruction, they were also designed for hope because all it took was getting rid of one little word, not. And their names became a message of salvation. So God says in chapter 1, verse 10, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people... It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. 
By God's grace, those called not my people will become sons of the loving God. That's the hope and the promise that God extends. And the marriage of Hosea and Gomer in this first volume illustrates it. But now we turn to the second volume where the relationship between God and his people is front and center. And these waves of judgment and these waves of hope that we've seen are going to continue as a theme. And perhaps in the process of chapters 4 through 14, we can discover how to go from not being the people of God to being his children. And so we come to the rest of Hosea. Chapters 4 through 14, which I'm calling volume 2. And in these chapters, we have prophecies of judgment. We have prophecies of hope. And as we step back once again to survey the vista that is here, there are many things that we're going to be able to learn about God. And it's my hope to summarize and apply these observations into four categories. First, I want you to see God's case against his people. As soon as we transfer from the story of Hosea and Gomer in chapter 3 to God and Israel in chapter 4, we see that he has a case against them. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Friends, it's horrifying for God to have a case against us. As Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To be his enemy, to have a complaint from him about us is no trivial matter at all. There couldn't be a more serious thing in the entire world. And so these chapters describe for us the case that God has against Israel. And it's a reminder that God judges for a reason. He has a problem with sinners, not because they're perfect, but because he's perfect and they're not. When God has a case against us, he's right. He's seeing things correctly. Romans 3.19 makes it plain that God's judgment is sure and just. In fact, so sure, Paul says, every mouth will be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. God looked at Israel in Hosea chapter 7 verse 2. And he said these terrifying words. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. God sees us up close and personal for who we truly are. And so when he has a case against us, we ought to listen. We ought to take his assessment of us seriously. We ought to take his threats seriously. We ought to take his offers of hope seriously. So let's read together a little bit about God's case against Israel and see if we are guilty of anything similar. We can see that God has a case against all the different types of people in Israel. No social class or status or religious education could keep people from God's wrath. Chapter 5, verse 1 includes them all. It says, Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. 
We hear about the wickedness of priests in chapter 6, verse 9. It says, and as raiders wait for a man, get this, raiders waiting for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. We hear about the evil of the rulers in chapter 4, verse 18. It says, their liquor gone, they play the harlot continually, their rulers dearly love shame. So this wickedness in Israel permeated to all the different types of people. And God saw it all. Their status as a king couldn't save them. Their status as a priest couldn't save them. Their status in the world couldn't save them. When God had a case of judgment against them, it stood. And friends, when God has a case of judgment against us, we have no case of defense on our own. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. But you may be wondering what kind of sins were being committed. Well, there were certainly all kinds of evil going on. So in general, there's just as there are all types of people being judged. It's because of all kinds of evil. Chapter four, verses one through three describes all the different kind. It says, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there's no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. So there are all kinds of evil. But there's two things in this book that are particularly striking. That God has a case against them for. First, there's the theme of false worship. The Israelites claim to know God, but they don't really know him. They don't love him and follow him and walk with him. They go through the motions outwardly, but there's no real life inwardly. No real love for God. It's false worship. Chapter 6, verse 6 gives us some insight into this. God says, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. I delight in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So you can go through all the outward rituals that you want, but God looks at the heart So is there a real loyalty to God? Is there true experiential knowledge of Him? That's what matters. Chapter 7 verse 14 says, They do not cry to me from their heart. In fact, in verse 16 of chapter 7, it says, They turn, but get this, they turn, but not upward. These people have many appearances of godliness, but there is no godliness to be found in them. God knows the counterfeit when he sees them and he has a case against them. So we have this issue of false worship. And we also have an issue of misplaced trust. Instead of trusting in God, they'd come to trust other nations. They come to trust idols and other gods like Baal. Israel became stubborn. They became spoiled. The more they got, the more they rejected the giver and trusted in other lovers. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. 
Chapter 10, verse 1 says, The more his fruit, talking about Israel, the more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. In chapter 13, God reminds Israel of how he cared for them in the wilderness when they were led out of Egypt. But he describes this faithless and this disloyal pattern in their lives. So in chapter 13, verses 5 through 6, this is what God says about their misplaced trust. He says, I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. Do you see that cycle? God gave them what they needed. They became satisfied. When they became satisfied, they became proud. When they became proud, they forgot who gave them the gifts. All throughout this book, you'll see a wicked, misplaced trust. God had blessed them in so many ways, but they began to trust in themselves. Chapter 10 says, Israel is a luxuriant vibe. He produces vine. He produces fruit for himself. And if they weren't trusting in themselves, they were trusting in other nations to provide. And even more wickedly, they were trusting in false gods like Baal. Fertility gods that were not real. Chapter 4 says, my people consult their wooden idol." says they departed from their God for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. Just think about this. You have Baal, who's known as the fertility God. And it was this belief that Baal brought fertile rains and fertile crops and fertile wombs instead of Yahweh. So they had, gone, they had grown forgetful. They were faithless. They were disloyal. God would provide... They would get comfortable and then they would forget him altogether. Then they would run to other lovers. This was God's case against Israel. As chapter 13 verse 4 says, it says, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were, to not, you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. But their worship of God was only an outward action while their hearts trusted in everything except for Him. I wonder if that describes anyone in this room. Your relationship with God is only about going through the motions. Sunday morning, before your meals, around the holidays like Christmas and Easter. But the rest of your time is marked by disloyalty toward God. No real knowledge of Him. No true love. Instead, your heart trusts in self or politicians or careers and so on. We ought to ask, might God have a case against us for false worship and misplaced trust? How many of us feel like this sad description in chapter 6 verse 4? He says, for your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Your loyalty is here one minute, gone the next. Chapter 11, verse 7, we get this really vivid statement that describes the heart of these Israelites. God says, my people are bent on turning from me. It's like they're set on it. I wonder if you view sin in this way. 
harlotry, spiritual prostitution, taking God's good gifts and then taking the credit for them, or giving credit where credit isn't due, having a heart bent on turning from God. You see, friends, when it says that they had a heart bent on turning from them, it shows that this sin is not just that they passively forget. They actively wander. Our hearts aren't just forgetful. They're wicked. We actively wonder if we could, if we were left to our own devices, like the song we sing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. So perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a believer. And if that's the case, this text is certainly something you can learn from because maybe you've exchanged the worship of the Creator for His creation and God has a true case against you. So that's been God's case against His people. But now we see God's judgment against His people. Our just God judges justly. This sin deserves punishment. And chapters 8 through 9, if you take some time this week to read through them, it describes in vivid detail the punishment that God is going to send upon them. It says they will reap the whirlwind. The crops will yield nothing. God is going to send a fire on all of Israel's cities. Weeds are going to overtake their treasure and their festivals are going to be removed. And most drastically, it says that God will give them miscarrying wounds and dry breasts. In other words, the fertility God of Baal will have his chance to prove himself. And of course, he won't be able to do a thing because he's not real. God will judge them. God will give them over to their folly. And perhaps they'll know their folly and they'll repent. Perhaps they'll recognize that it was God who provided for them all along. You see, sin deserves punishment. The wages of sin is death. And this book is a reminder of that reality. So while you're not living in the 700s BC, you need to know something very serious. Hebrews 9.27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed, appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. You die, you'll be judged by the great judge. If God has a case against you, and it isn't settled in this life. Punishment is to come in the next. But we also have a third movement in this book. And that's God's hope for his people. We've seen God's judgment. Now we see God's hope. Amidst all of this unfaithfulness of Israel, God remains the faithful one. We must remember the picture of faithful Hosea extending his forgiving love to unfaithful Gomer. So let's just take a moment to simply read some of the pronouncements of hope in this book. Starting in chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. So God will bring his people back, not by brute force, but by the kind and irresistible alluring of a faithful love. And then we have the beauty of chapter 11, which in reality, if we had the time, chapter 11 deserves its own sermon. But for the sake of this sermon, we ought to read it. 
so that you can see the heart of God in it. This God who had a case against Israel, a case in which he surely will bring about judgment, still offers hope and compassion. We'll see all of it in chapter 11. So here it is. It's not too long. Here's God speaking. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refuse to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Here we have such great and atrocious sin that God will certainly punish it. They will go into exile, but they can go into exile with hope that God would receive them again. This teaches us that even such a hideous sin as this is not too great for God's grace. The way to receive these hopeful promises is by repentance. And repentance is laid out clearly for us in this book in chapter 14. The first four verses read, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. Repentance is marked by recognizing your sin before God and confessing it. Asking for forgiveness and turning from trusting in yourself and false gods and trusting in the one true God to save. Now as we conclude, I want to finish by pointing out a few things that we can learn about God's heart for His people. We've seen His case against them, His judgment of them, His hope for them. Now let's close our time together by meditating on His heart for them. 
One of the things that you'll notice, and I hope that as we go through these minor prophets, you'll take the time to read maybe the book we're going to be preaching from the next Sunday in advance. They don't take too long to read. This is the longest one. It takes 36 minutes. Most of them, 5 to 10. One of the things that you'll notice if you read through Hosea is all these little conjunctions, like four and therefore. And they're connected to all these judgment passages. Hosea prophesies about God's coming judgment, and then he gives a reason. When God says he has a case against Israel, he then says, because or for there's no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. His judgment is tied to their evil deeds, all their idol worship. But when God breaks out in these passages promising hope and compassion, you'll notice that the fours and the therefores disappear. At least they don't show up in the same way. There's no reason given for his compassion. And one commentator said it so beautifully that God's judgment needs a reason. His compassion does not. When he punishes, the person always deserves it. When he forgives, the person never deserves it. God shows compassion and he shows mercy freely. He's not forced to by any external factors. He's not compelled to because of who we are and what we've done. God shows mercy because he's a merciful God. There's nothing that Gomer did to receive love from Hosea. In fact, she did absolutely everything possible to earn his wrath. But Hosea loved her anyways. In the same way, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's love. We are adulterous people, totally dependent upon God to show us mercy. And He has, particularly in Jesus Christ. The cross is the perfect display of God's mercy and grace. On the Calvary tree, Jesus, the Son of God, freely took all of our sin upon Him so that all who trust in Him can be saved. He offered His perfect life in their place so that He gets credit for the sinner's sin and the sinner gets credit for His perfection. By trusting in Christ alone, that's the only way that God takes our sin and receives us. And as chapter 14 says, it's the only way that orphans can find mercy. The way God declares His promise of compassion in chapter 1, verse 10 can't be missed. Just remember what it says. It said, in that place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Remember that in chapter 1? Well, that same passage is quoted directly by Paul in Romans chapter 9. But listen to how Paul applies it. He says, even us whom he has called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. 
Friends, if you want to know something about the heart of God, here you can see how massive His compassion truly is. Because this passage in Hosea about becoming God's children, Paul applies it to all the nations. Which means this promise of hope extends beyond an ethnic group of Israel and extends to you here today. God may have a case against you. You may be dangerously sitting under His wrath, but the hope of compassion is yours through faith in Christ. No matter when you live, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, Gomer's only hope was Hosea. Our only hope is Jesus. For believers, there's one other place where this idea shows up. And it's in 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy But now you have received mercy. Peter says that to the church. People called the people of God now. And he says that this is so they will declare the excellencies of God. So dear beloved. You and I are in this world where we once did not receive mercy, but now we have. Where we were not, once not His people, but now we are. We have had this grace towards us so that we could show the world the great treasure that God is. But when we live in idolatrous ways, we say the opposite. Let the words of Thomas Watson sink in here. He said, you that have been monuments of God's mercy should be trumpets of praise. You that have tasted the Lord is gracious. Tell others what experiences you have had of God's mercy. That you may encourage them to seek to him for mercy. Oh, tell others of God's goodness. That you may set others blessing him. And that you may make God's praises live when you are dead. So as this book concludes, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Friend, will you do away with your misplaced trust? Will you cast all of your hope on Jesus alone? If you do, even though you've been unfaithful, our faithful God will never leave you nor forsake you.